find myself so caught up in that singing, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my voice sometimes. <laughs> and uh, so if my voice breaks, that might be one of the reasons why, because I just can't help but sing from the bottom of my heart. Would you join me as we pray together? Father, this day we have been singing of your glory. We've been singing about how great you are. And we've been acknowledging, Lord, that we we know you are an awesome God who has shown us amazing grace and incredible mercy. And so, Lord, we pray that today we might be reminded of the greatness of your being and your character as we consider another attribute, Lord, what makes you, you, another area of perfection. We ask, Lord, it would not just be an academic exercise, something we do and put it in our brain and then we leave and it doesn't impact us, nor does it make us long to admire you and glorify you all the more. Lord, we pray that we might truly encounter you as we look into your word. Toward this end, we need your help. So Holy Spirit, have your way with us, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Some disillusioned people, and maybe you have been there at some point in your life, or maybe you are even struggling with this now. Some disillusioned people who have observed the breadth and the depth of suffering and of brokenness in this world have drawn the following conclusion. They have looked out and seen so much devastation, so much suffering, and they have concluded this. If there is a God, He must not give a rip. You ever heard someone say that? Have you ever wondered that yourself? Then they go on and they would say, otherwise, if God... We're not a person who was so uncaring. If God, otherwise, he would do something about this messed up world. I would suggest to you, most people deep down in their hearts, they long for a God who cares. Let me ask you this. Would you worship a God who was indifferent, cold-hearted, unsympathetic, and lacking in compassion? Suppose a multimillionaire, super rich person took a tour through Haiti, let's say, or as I read, read the other day, in Mali, West Africa, which is where they're having a terrible, uh, terrible crisis, uh, people starving in incredible numbers, or Darfur, Africa, or wherever you want to say, Sudan, and they, they visit this, this rich person visits this place, and he notices this famine condition that threatens uh, thousands and thousands of people with starvation and disease. Now, how would you react if you knew that this wealthy person who actually went there and saw these individuals firsthand in these vast villages, desperate, impoverished people, and the guy, after touring this area, said, to him, said uh, in, a, in a public statement, ah, these people have coming to them what they deserve. They should have made wiser choices in life and turned his back on them and did absolutely nothing to help them in their need. I would say most people would view that man's indifference as a moral deficiency. 
people would condemn that man. And they would say, how dare he? And the question I want to raise this morning is, is the God of the Bible, the God who created all things, and has revealed himself in the scriptures and revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, is he morally deficient in terms of his response to a world of suffering, a world that's in distress? I would take issue with that, and I'm going to try to set forth for you to this morning an understanding of another one of God's attributes, and that is that God is a God of mercy. As I said in the title, God is rich in mercy, taken from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. And I want you to consider with me this morning our first point. I want us to think just for a moment about the nature of God's mercy. The nature of God's mercy. The Bible does not portray God as cold-hearted or indifferent to those in need. We find just the opposite in the pages of Scripture. We know that God is merciful and that he shows pity and loving kindness and compassion toward those who are in misery and distress. And here's a, just a sampling of scriptures that celebrate this fact. In Psalm 86.5, we read, You, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to, those, to all those who call upon you. And then written by someone who witnessed the devastating destruction of Jerusalem. And we're talking about a terrible, terrible disaster that I don't think any of us can fully fathom how it would affect a Jew at that time. But Jeremiah wrote these words in Lamentation chapter 3, verse 22, that God will show compassion toward, I'm sorry, he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. The multitude of his mercies. Psalm 103 celebrates the fact that God crowns our lives, which Tim read earlier, crowns our lives with loving kindness and tender mercies. When faced with serious consequences for his wrongdoing, King David was quoted to have said the following words to the prophet Gad in 2 Samuel 24. He says, I am in great distress. He admits it. He says, my sinful choices by action and taking that census, I'm in distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are great. Theologians, I believe I've put it in your notes, have summarized God's mercy as an expression of His goodness shown to those who are in misery or distress, irrespective of their deserts. Now what he's saying there is, even though they don't deserve it, God still extends mercy to people. His heart is turn toward them in tender compassion. God is tender-hearted toward those who are in desperate need. In the midst of situations where God's holiness is emphasized, I find it interesting that oftentimes the biblical writers will counterbalance an emphasis on the holiness of God, His moral purity, and they contrast that and mention also to counterbalance it the fact that God is also merciful. Turn with me in your Bible to, to uh, page number 222, the Pew Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4 in the Pew Bible, page 222. Now the setting of this text of Scripture is, you'll recall the book of Deuteronomy is three sermons that Moses preached on the east side of the Jordan River prior to uh, sending the rest of them across the river 
toward the west to go and conquer the promised land, having wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. At the end of those 40 years now, and he's summarizing three great sermons, things that they need to remember, he hoped that they will pass on to the next generation. Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses reminds the children of Israel of two things. One is, he says, I'm not going to go cross this Jordan River with you. I'm going to die on the east side here. So he's admitting, he says, I'm sending you forward, I'm going to stay here. Second thing he says to them is he warns them one more time, as he has warned them many times before, against making graven images. That is, imitating the people that are going to be around who are Canaanites, who worship idols, and who make various local idols that they look to to help them in various concerns they have. He says, I don't want you to follow their ways. I want you to worship the true and living God. Then pick it up in verse 24. So we're in Deuteronomy 4.24. The reason why, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. That's the reason you're not supposed to make all those idols. And when you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I, will call, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you shall surely perish quickly from the land where you're going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but shall be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you shall be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. Verse 28. And there you will serve gods and work the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God. Watch how he's turning now. He's indicating the judgment is going to come upon you. You're going to suffer the consequences of your sin. But watch this now. Here's grace and mercy. But from there, verse 29, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress, that's a key point. When you are in distress because of your sin, because of your wandering heart, and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to His voice. Verse 31, For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. Do you, do you see that? Verse 24, Lord is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Verse 31, The Lord your God is a compassionate God. You must see and understand God is just not one trait. He is a multitude of different traits that all blend together in a perfected, perfection of balance and beauty the lord your god is a compassionate god he will not fail you nor destroy destroy you nor forget the covenant with your fathers which he swore to them when the children of israel were warned that when they failed to live up to their commitments and they were suffering the painful consequences of their sinful choices and they found themselves in a desperate situation they needed to hear what you and I need to hear. And what's that? That God is compassionate and merciful toward people who mess up, people who sin, people who fail, people who intend one thing and they fall short. Those who make foolish choices, they need to know that God is, is a compassionate, merciful God. And that this is the kind of thing that I think is so important to emphasize, the Scripture emphasizes continually, is that God is merciful and compassionate. Now, I want to emphasize and expand on this by our second point this morning, and that is the poignant portraits of God's mercy. You say, what are you saying, this crazy word, poignant? Well, poignant means 
deeply affecting. These portraits of God's mercy are designed to evoke a powerful response among people if you'll take the time to think about it and ponder what is God is revealing in these particular portraits of His mercy. Now, the first thing I want to point out to you in, in, in these portraits is the mercy of God, while it does provide us hope and comfort for the times we're in distress, it has not always been celebrated. There are some people who get tripped up over this and they've had a hard time with that. It is not something that's always been greatly appreciated. And you say, give me an example. All right, the first point is consider the prophet Jonah. The prophet Jonah. He was commissioned by God to do what? Well, let's see, get my bearings right. He was supposed to go this way. He's supposed to go northeast. And in going northeast, he was commissioned to go to the capital city of the big, huge nation of Assyria. And he was to go to the, uh, the capital of that um, big kingdom, Nineveh, which was at the time they believed might have been one of the largest cities in the world. Huge, huge urban city. And he is to preach a message of repentance to them. Now, you know the story of many of you, I'm sure. Along with most of Israel, Jonah hated anybody from Assyria. He hated Assyrians, every one of them. And he wanted these Assyrians to be wiped off the face of the earth. He so despised them, he was hoping and praying that God would bring down judgment on them. His heart was filled with hatred toward them, and he refused. He refused the assignment, and he went the opposite direction. He headed west. And he headed actually to a town that's in what we know as Spain today, which is as far away as you possibly could go. That was like the edge of the world in their minds. So God does what? Well, God disciplines Jonah. And he stops him in his tracks, and he dramatically saves and rescues Jonah in the midst of his tremendous time of distress in the belly of a great fish. You don't think that's a distressful situation? Try it sometime. (laughs) Jonah literally thought he was a goner. He thought he was going to die. And God shows mercy and compassion on this rebellious prophet of God and has him, next thing you know, spewed out on the, on the land. And here is Jonah, given an opportunity, a second chance to make right what he was told to do the first time to go to Nineveh with that message of repentance. And so Jonah then makes that long trip. Which way is he going now? Not going this way, he's going this way, right? Headed northeast. He heads over to Nineveh, and he gives the message. In chapter 3, verse 4, here's his message. boils down to this. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. End of sermon. Some of you are thinking, ooh, what a nice short sermon. That was the end of his message. 40 days, you people in Nineveh are going to be overthrown. But since Jonah's heart was full of pride, And I would dare say he had racial hatred toward these people. All the residents of this large Assyrian city, he became angry when the people did what? When they repented. (laughs) When they responded to that message and realized, "Uh uh-oh, we've done wrong. 
And God did not bring judgment upon them. And here he despised these Assyrian people so much, he's longing for their destruction in chapter 4, verse 1. And he admits, he admits why he got so upset. He admits why he refused to go to Nineveh and was headed the opposite direction. He says to God, I knew God. I knew that you were a gracious and a compassionate God slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. He says, I knew you were that kind of God, and I didn't want to come here and see that happen for these people. What a tragic admission on the part of a prophet of God. He's sort of complaining about, God, I know what you're like, and I don't like what you're going to do. So the book concludes with this fascinating lesson on God's mercy being directed toward his unmerciful servant, Jonah. And Jonah sets up a camp outside those walls. By the way, the walls, they think, were about 30 or 40 feet thick, wide enough that you could ride a chariot on the top of them all the way around. We're talking a vast, very complex, very, in a sense, modern city of the day. And so he's sitting outside the city walls there, and he's probably counting down the days. I'm just waiting for those 40 days to go by, and I'm waiting for that judgment to come. And during that time, his heart is full of vengeance. God provided a plant that began to grow, some sort of vine that grew rather quickly, and it gave him shade in the middle of the noonday sun. And let me tell you something. You get shade in the sun, it's worth a million bucks, right? If you've been over to a very hot place. And so God appointed, soon after that, a worm, which then proceeded to chew the vine, which caused the vine to die, which meant the shade went away, and and therefore, not to mention that's enough, he no longer has the shade. Here comes God with another thing. God says, I'm going to stir up those winds, those shiraka winds that come in and bring the heavy, heavy, heavy hot winds that are going to just roast everybody here. And so he gets super hot, and Jonah gets very hot. And that's a little bit of a pun here because I think he's not only mad at the plant and probably mad at the worm that killed the plant, but he's also literally burning up in the scorching heat and the hot air. And God confronts Jonah and he says, all right, Jonah, how is it that you could have compassion and be so tenderhearted about this plant that's died that you had nothing to do with and you have such indifference for the half million people here who are about to face the judgment of God and have now repented. The point was here what? The point was that the more we experience and grasp the grace of God and the mercy of God shown to us in the gospel, the more we are compelled to be open and generous to people who are outcasts, to the people who are unlovely, in this world. And God's people needs to be reminded what? That God's mercy extends over the borders of various racial boundaries and social boundaries and political boundaries and ethnic boundaries. It's amazing how merciful God is and how He longs for His people to also share in that kind of mercy, merciful attitude toward those who are so different from them. There's another story I want to tell. Let's real quickly move on to this one. This one is a story that Jesus told, and he gave a powerful lesson on God's mercy, and he did it to a group of people who at the time were known to be 
the mo- one of the most significant religious rule keepers of Jesus' day. You know him as the Pharisees and the scribes. Luke 15 is where this story is told. Luke 15 starts off explaining that the religious legalists, the people who are very much into keeping laws and rules and who are very unhappy about people who don't, they are grumbling and they're making lots of noise and criticizing the fact that Jesus welcomed and actually received people who broke the clear rules and standards of God's laws and also the many, many laws that these people made up to try to somehow improve their sense of righteous self-righteousness. And so Jesus is actually eating with these people. And they're like, what is with this guy? How can he say that he's who he is and yet he's eating and having fellowship with these people? Here's Jesus' response to the legalists. He told three parables to these uncaring spiritual show-offs who were proudly parading their self-righteousness even though all the while they're assuming that they thought they were exempt from having to repent about anything. They don't see any need in their life to repent. They are people who keep those rules, they keep all those regulations, and they want everybody to know there's no reason for them to be repentant. So I don't have time to go into the first two parables. The third parable, though, is one that's quite powerful in that Jesus shocked his listeners. He's making up a story here, and the story is about the worst sinner possible in the mind of a first century Jew. Worst possible sinner is like this. Well, you have a wretched Jewish son who wants his father dead. That's, I mean, you can't get much worse than that to start off with. He wants his father dead, and in so way, in, in so doing, he's demanding from his father, basically saying the same thing by, give me my inheritance now. I wish you were dead. Give me my money, the inheritance now. Well, the father reluctantly gives him that money, and here he goes. He heads as far as he can go away from his homeland to a Gentile land where he wastes his inheritance money on what? On prostitutes and partying. And after his money runs out, he becomes quite desperate, and he gets down to the point where he says, all I have left to do is to feed the pigs somebody owns, which I'm not even supposed to be around these pigs, and I'm so desperately hungry, I'm even going to eat what the pigs are being fed. It's an outrageous thing to do for any Jew. And then Jesus adds even more shocking element to the parable. He brings in a point now about the father. The son is enough shock of of the kind of despicable things he's done. But now there's this father in the story who does something more outrageous than the shameful son. This father, according to the custom of the day, would have been expected to hate his son. And he would have dealt with his son basically on the level of saying, you're going to work for me on the level of being a serve or slave or somebody who's an employee of mine, and you're just going to earn back all that inheritance and you're no longer called my son. And, but this merciful father shocks everybody by doing what? He spares his son the dismay and the disapproval of the villagers who would have known about this son because it's obviously known by all now. This guy has really brought shame upon this family, upon this father. And here this son ever comes in that, anywhere close to that village, everybody would hear about it. And he would receive, the moment he came anywhere close, that dishonorable son would be showered with curses and vitriol by everyone in the community. And the father did what no father would ever do, 
while that son was a long way off, the story goes that Jesus told, that father felt compassion for that son, that wayward son, and he began running, which you don't ever do as a Middle Eastern man with your full flowing garment. You shouldn't reveal your legs if you're a Middle Eastern man. And so he pulls up those robes. He is running pell-mell as fast as he can go, bringing shame upon himself in doing that. He kisses that wretched son. He puts a robe on him, puts his ring on there, puts his, those sandals on there, and he was what? Holds a big party. People hearing the story go, what? You've got to be kidding me. That's no way. It's shocking. And from this perspective of these self-righteous Pharisees, the story was scandalous. It was outrageous that God, in the picture of this father, would extend mercy and forgiveness to a wretched sinner. Because the father in the story, obviously, is a portrait of God who is rich in mercy. And Jesus taught that God does the outrageous. He shows mercy toward desperate people. And that in so doing, there is great rejoicing in heaven when there's a sinner who repents. And if you look in another incident of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 9, when Jesus was asked why he was sharing a meal with people who had a reputation for moral and financial corruption, we're talking people who were known to be criminals or people who were known to be immoral, and he is engaging in significant times of contact and fellowship with those people. He said this, Matthew 9, 12, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, it's those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I desire compassion. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. The merciful Son of God, Jesus Christ, in telling these stories, rebuked those who hold harsh, judgmental attitudes and look down on other people with self-righteous scorn. Jesus hates that attitude. Because what it indicates is, I don't give a rip about you. I'm only concerned that I be seen as a self-righteous hypocrite. That's an ugly, ugly attitude. And to show favoritism towards some and not to view all as equal child, children of God, clearly also is judged. If you look at James chapter 2, I don't have time to unpack all this, but it's a fascinating text in which James confronts the church and said, why are you treating the rich nicely in your church services and you seat the poor somewhere else, in the back, in the worst seats? Don't you know how awful that is? That, that just compromises the whole gospel and what God is like. And he says this, judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. And then he says this, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the way God operates. Mercy triumphs over judgment, which means what? As we show mercy and reveal the fact that we have received the mercy of God, then that will show someday in the judgment seat that we really have been people whose hearts have been changed. Well, I hope that though you understand the power of those two examples, let's look thirdly now at the responses. What does this mean about us and where we live every day? If God is truly merciful, then what, what difference does that make? What kind of responses should that evoke from us? Well, there are several. The first I would like to suggest is, number one, we need to humble ourselves 
humble ourselves and then marvel at the mercy of God shown to us in the gospel. Because God is rich in mercy, He has taken drastic steps to rescue sinners like us. He has sent His one and only Son to live a perfect, sinless life, to die in our place, to pay a debt that we owed, and that He was raised from the dead, and then we are provided the only solution available to reconcile us to God, to trust in Him and surrender to Him. In other words, we were unable to make good on our debts. You see? We were desperate. And out of, we're out of resources. We're desperate. And spiritually, we're bankrupt. And God has provided wealth to us. He has provided to us the wealth of Christ's righteousness. He impoverished His Son so that, his, he, so that Christ's spiritual wealth, His righteousness, could be given to those of us who believe. So in the gospel, God does not relate to us on the basis of our earned merit or our performance. Turn with your Bible, if you will, to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, page 1418 in your pew Bible. Titus 3. It's a fascinating text. Sometimes I think we quote verse 5, we don't realize what was... What, what, what occurred in the verses leading up to that. Titus 3, beginning of verse 3. We also, once, were characterized by what? Well, we were once foolish ourselves, Paul says, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice. Malice means you wish someone would have something very evil happen to them. Just a lot of anger in there. Envy hateful, hating one another. That's the way we used to be. Paul's reminding Titus, don't you remember? But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, God saved us. Because we were better than somebody else? No. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His what? His mercy. His mercy is the reason why we've been saved. His compassion toward us. His seeing us in, an, in a fact that we're in distress. And Paul reminds Titus how desperately Titus and you and I need a Savior. And since God has dealt with us out of the overflowing of His compassionate, merciful heart, it is inappropriate then to entertain arrogant and uncaring attitudes toward people who are still in their sin. People who are still... Living lives characterized by what? Being deceived, disobedient, enslaved, various desires and pleasures, spending their life in malice and envy. We need to be careful that we don't look down at them and think, oh, give me a break. You people, I'm not going to get involved in your life. You're an idiot. You know, you, just, you start looking at them as if you're so much better than they are. And Paul says, whoa, you better humble yourself. You better realize you have received what you've received forgiveness and being adopted as a son of God what on the basis of God's mercy shown to you in the gospel no matter how disobedient or depraved people choose to live God's compassionate response was to provide a merciful savior 
Sermon on the Mount says what? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be what? They shall receive mercy. Secondly, I'd like to suggest as another response, it certainly would be appropriate in light of God's mercy that we offer Him our heartfelt thanks for the breadth and the extent of His daily tender mercies. Psalm 145, verse 8, the great text, Psalm 145, speaks of the fact of God's mercy. He says this, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. Verse 9, 145, verse 9, The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. What does that mean? It means that the general mercies of God are widely extended to all of God's creatures. That means believers and unbelievers every day are receiving various mercies from God. And Jesus referred to this in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 when he said this. He says, love your enemies in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Well, what is our Father in heaven like? Well, he causes the Son, that is the S. UN. By the way, it says his son. The, the huge ball of fire that gives light to this world and energy. The, su- the son is his son, it says. S-U-N. His son, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That means, despite the fact that many people refuse to submit to God, they refuse to acknowledge him as God, they refuse to acknowledge his reign and rule, they defy and they curse God, that God nonetheless exhibits and demonstrates his mercy to them and to me every day by freely giving us simple blessings like oxygen or rain or sunshine and an endless list of other various essentials that we take for granted that are mercy shown to us we don't deserve them. And we're clearly in distress unless we receive them. So there's a sense in which hopefully you'll thank God. There are 10,000 reasons to thank God. We ought to work hard on trying to find more and more reasons to be thankful to God and the mercies He shows to us day by day. Thirdly, another response that is somewhat sobering and challenging is we're called to imitate our merciful God. Imitate our merciful God. Jesus insisted that His followers are to respond to their enemies in some way, on some level, similar to the way that he would respond to his enemies. Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 35, page 1224. Luke 6, 35. There we read, Jesus said, We are to love our enemies by doing good, not evil to them. That's just the opposite of what we want to do. That's the opposite of what the world does. If somebody's done something to you and they are your enemy, well, just give it back to them. Look what they deserve. Jesus challenges that, and he says, listen, you're supposed to be like your Father in heaven. So he goes on to say this. If you're a true child of God, verse 36, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. You need to chew on that for a little while. That's pretty powerful. There are people in distress all around us. Some of them are chronically unemployed. Some are homeless. Some are orphaned, divorced, lonely, 
Some have been or are being molested and abused. Some are mentally and physically challenged. Some are living in poverty, depressed, trying to live their life on their own with no understanding of God's ways. And the Bible repeatedly affirms that God is vitally concerned for the poor, for the down and out, for the downtrodden, for those who are in many ways mistreated, abused, and thrown away. And he is expecting and longs for his followers to imitate him as he is merciful and that we are to have some level of the same concern that God has toward those who are in great need. If you look at Luke chapter 10, I don't have time to unpack all these stories, but I wish you would go back and look at them carefully this week. In Luke 10, Jesus teaches another powerful parable to his listeners verse 25 to 37, about this parable about a man who was robbed, a man who was beaten, and left to die on that dangerous road from Jerusalem to Jericho. There's lots of high hills and uh, lots of little places people could hide, little caves in there and stuff. And so it was known to be a really rough part of town where people knew that the crime rate is fairly high on the road to Jericho. And so you can be sure that the listeners that Jesus spoke to were stunned as he told the story and made it up as he went along. He said, the priest and Levite come upon this man who's been beaten and everything stolen from him on that same road, and they choose not to get involved. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking that, but we need to be careful because if you don't identify with those people, you need need to be aware that sometimes you might be a little too quick scorning those men and you convict yourself. Shouldn't do all that singing. Excuse me. These two individuals who are religious leaders, they overlook their duty to God by so doing, walking over this man, walking beside him. They're overlooking the demands of the law. The law had said, this is the kind of person that you should help. The person who stopped, The person in the story that Jesus told was the most unlikely person who would ever do something like this to help a Jew who was down there injured, robbed, and left for dead is a Samaritan. Everybody, when he heard, the audience when he said that, probably would have gone, like, what? No way. Here is the bitter enemy of the Jewish man stopping to offer help and assistance to him. And this man's compassion was full-bodied compassion, He took steps to meet a variety of the needs at great cost to himself. And rather than assuming that we have no role to play in the lives of many people around us who we might consider to be difficult to love, Jesus commanded his followers in Luke 6, verse 36-37, he says, go, after repeating this story, he says, go and do the same, that is, show mercy to your neighbor. Show mercy to your neighbor, even an enemy of yours. Wow, it's a powerful text. It's a very convicting text. It's a call to be merciful, like God. Now, I know that, we, that, that is a multifaceted, very complex, big issue to deal with. Uh, there are many ways that we can uh, try to apply this. I, I realize I'm not going to be able to fully unpack that. I would just encourage you to think through what God would call you to be doing in terms of how can I show mercy to somebody, somebody who's in distress. I've been helped by the book by Tim Keller called Ministry of Mercy, Ministries of Mercy. 
And I'm going to take this quote from his book, as I've included in your notes there, as he gives this challenging word. He says, For decades, evangelicals have avoided the radical nature of the teaching of the parable of the Good Samaritan. It is time to listen more closely because the world, which never was safe, quote-unquote, to live in, is becoming even less so. War, injustice, oppression, famine, natural disaster, family breakdown, disease, mental illness, physical disability, racism, crime, scarcity of resources, class struggle are results of our alienation from God. These are the effects of the fall, the curse of sin in our culture and society in the world. And many of us lead an existence generally free from these forces. And this comparative comfort can isolate us in a fictitious world where suffering is difficult to find. That is, many of us live in tremendous amounts of comfort when there's people that are brokenness and distress all around us. But suffering surrounds us, even in the suburbs. We need an accurate view of the world in which we live, and perhaps we need to see that instead of living on islands of ease, we are all living on the Jericho Road. Unquote. Now, where do you go with that? Well, I don't know where you're going to go, but I'd like to just repeat some, several things that we offer here, things that you could possibly do. If God has shown you mercy, then is it not appropriate to show mercy to somebody in crisis, as we heard the other day, uh, by sponsoring a child around the world with just an amount of donation that's about the amount of, of about four or five cups of coffee by at Starbucks, you can actually give a child an education, give them food, and give them a future and a hope, and give them the gospel. So there's Compassion International or World Vision or someone who's doing this adopting thing. It is worth investing in. Or more closely here at hand, there is the Lighthouse Mission. There is Long Island Youth Mentoring, people who do not have a father in their life who will teach them and instruct them and love them and show them that they're dig they have dignity and they're valued. They're just looking for somebody to spend a little bit of time with them once a week. <clears throat> You'd be amazed how you can impact a life for eternity. Then there's For His Children and orphanages that you can get involved in and help sponsor a child in that sense or, or be involved in maybe another trip that goes there or you can be involved in the care center and offering some assistance to women who are in crisis. You can involve yourself by saying, well, I'd like to offer some as assistance to those who financially find themselves in hard times through our benevolent fund in our church. There are many ways that you can show mercy. Taking a meal to someone is an act of mercy to someone in crisis not to mention many other complex problems in our society today. There are many things you can do. The question is, where is your heart? Is it moved tenderly toward people who are in distress? If God has shown us mercy, we are to be merciful like our Father. One final thing I'd like to suggest to us as a way of responding is that we are to find comfort in the midst of affliction, knowing that God is the Father of mercies. There's comfort in pondering and rehearsing in our minds who is God. He is the Father. He is the source of real mercy that comes to me day by day. You say, what are you talking about? Well, in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing a very personal letter, revealing his heart. He's really in a crisis. He's very much uh, being under attack. And he says, listen, I want you to know, and you, you already know, I almost died. I went through a crisis not too long ago. He says, I almost died, but God showed me mercy. God is the Father of mercies. 
And God sustained him. God helped him and showed him compassion. And in so doing, he's teaching his own story, saying, God has shown me compassion and mercy. I want you to know that God is going to take the same thing that I've received, and I know he wants me to share that with you. And he says, and when you receive mercy and compassion from God, you're to share that with other people. As we encounter suffering and ongoing trials, Jesus has provided access to God so that we can come boldly to God's throne of grace. So that no matter when it is, no matter where we are, we have access right to the presence of God at the throne of grace. And what are we going to receive when we come there through Jesus Christ? We're going to receive what? Mercy. A compassionate response as we come in our distress. God's heart is turned toward us in mercy. And we're going to find help in our time of need. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Some of us who go through distress, remember, don't let your distress rob you of the true view of God. He is the Father of all mercy and the God of all comfort. Let's pray. Our most merciful God, how we thank you that you have not walked past us when we were lying in distress on the road of life, having gotten into trouble, having made foolish and tragic decisions, having turned our back on you, having gone our own way, how we thank you that you have viewed us with great mercy in the person of Christ. We thank you that you are a merciful God, full of compassion, willing to forgive. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help our, our hearts to be moved today, to be aware of the greatness of that mercy, Lord, and never to forget and never to, to diminish the extent of the misery, the distress that we were in in our own sin. Perhaps our Lord is someone here today who's never really gauged how bad off they are until they begin to realize how far, how far short they fall from being merciful. You've shown them what they're like, Lord. I pray that they would turn to you, the merciful God, even today, saying, Lord Jesus, save me. Thank you for paying a debt I couldn't pay through Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that those of us who claim that payment on our behalf, I pray that we might be merciful. Teach us, Lord, what it means to walk before you humbly with a merciful attitude toward people around us who are perhaps even our enemies, people that are difficult to love, people who have bad attitudes, who say, do awful things, people who have tremendous needs. Lord, help us, we pray, to have a heart that cares like you. And Father, also just pray that you would remove from anyone here today a false and deceptive way of thinking. That they keep, keep thinking that, well, someday I'll get right with you. Someday I'll repent. Someday I'll turn from my sin and bend my knee before Christ and confess him as Lord. But right now I'll just go my own way because he'll be merciful to me someday. Lord, I pray that you would help them to understand that your mercy will not tarry forever that you are showing tender mercies this day so that we might not take advantage of your kindness and your patience, but it's meant to lead us to repentance. And so I pray, O oh Lord, that we might know you 
as you truly are, the God who is holy, but also the God who is compassionate and merciful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.